0: Good morning. We're going to study in Psalm chapter 103 this morning, so go ahead and grab your Bibles, turn to Psalm 103. I don't know if you're like me, but sometimes it just, you you want to worship, but it's like you can't get there. You ever been there where you you know it's right and you know your soul needs it, but you can't can't get there. There's too much other stuff happening, and too much clutter and distraction. And um, I feel that sometimes. I can feel it sometimes even in the room. Like we we want to get there. We just we just can't. So I wanna I wanna teach this morning from Psalm chapter 103. It's a Psalm of David, and we'll talk about his background and his history and his story. And we're gonna go through it. Then we're gonna get to Isaiah chapter 53. So if you wanna find that, we'll get there as well. Um, but to get us there, just I want to acknowledge a few things for us, first of all. This is awkward for all of us. And then secondly, um, there's there's a lot of scholars and sociologists and psychologists right now studying a number of things, and they're studying what's called negativity bias. Now, negativity bias is the idea that negative emotions, negative experiences are more powerful or they're more vibrant in our lives than positive experiences are. Uh, We remember negative things much more than we remember positive things. And especially now culturally, sociologically, where we are, where we live, where we work and play, we live in this place where we are prone to remember and focus on the negative more than we are to focus on the positive. So let me just do this thought experiment for us. If you were to, which of these would be more emotionally um, effective for you? Which one would stir emotion and affection for you more? Would it be, one, that you found a, a $100 bill on the ground or that you were the one who lost the $100 bill on the ground. <laughs> who, would, who would be more stirred by losing the $100 than finding it? Anybody? That lasts longer, doesn't it? Because then you remember that. You remember that for years. And you tell your kids about the time you lost $100. So please don't lose this jacket at school. Right? This, this is, these are things that carry on for us. This is how we are wired. It's how God has, has designed us. Um, and so we have to be careful of some of these things, right? So, what they're learning now is it takes five equally positive experiences to do away with one equally negative experience. Five positive experiences to do away with one negative experience. Five words of affirmation to do with one biting criticism. Five to one, and that's that's generous. We're more likely to assign blame than we are to assign credit. Those of us who are football fans, we understand how this works. If by a miracle of the Lord, college football comes back in the fall, on Sunday morning, you are going to remember the interception thrown by your quarterback more than you're going to remember that pinpoint accuracy from two passes before. Aren't you? We're more critical of coaches than we are uh, praising them or celebrating them. This happens in politics all the time. Do you remember the last time you praised a politician? If if they did something praiseworthy, do you feel like, this, this is what we do. We focus on the negative. We're more likely to assign blame than criticism. In our marriages, this happens continually. We remember negative experiences. We remember criticism more than we remember praiseworthy things. We speak criticism more than we speak affirmation. A professor at Stanford named Clifford Nass. He says that, culturally, we've gotten to a place where we've decided that negativity denotes intelligence. Intelligent people are negative. Dumb people are optimistic. We've associated optimism with naivety, and we've associated negativity or pessimism with being educated. In the church, to call it discernment. <laughs> you don't have the gift of discernment. You're just a jerk. That's, that's different. Right, so this is where for us, I want to get somewhere for us this morning. They've said that when taken in conjunction with the laboratory-based experiments, there is strong support for the notion that negative information generally has a stronger pull on our attention than does positive information. Turn on a news channel and scroll your social media feed and tell me that's not true. Scrolling social media begins to ramp up this undercurrent of anxiety and anger because our hearts are prone to negativity. The ancient hymn would say that prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. So as a baseline this morning, I need us to get here. I need us to get to we are prone to wandering. We are prone to taking our eyes off of Jesus. We are prone to negativity. But in the world, in the cultural climate that we live, the belief is that man is inherently good, therefore evil is surprising. But if we read our scripture and we know our own hearts, here's what we know. Man is inherently evil and good is surprising. The reason, reason we're drawn towards negativity, towards people evil, towards pessimism, is because for some reason that shocks us, like evil people shouldn't be evil, Like kids shouldn't cry and kick and scream. Scripture tells us there is no one good. No, not one. So for a lot of us, what happens is because we are so inundated and because we are prone to that, we are prone to that sort of distraction in our souls. And it doesn't happen all at once. It kind of subtly happens. So it's a, our graduation was not how it should have been this year. Which just so you know, your parents care more about that than you do. So one bad thing happens, turns into two bad things happening, which turns into 20 bad things happening. And then everything that's even good looks bad to you. And we're prone to it. Our hearts are prone. And then that turns into, for many of us, if we're honest, turns into feelings of guilt and shame and fear and anxiety and depression. And we find ourselves five, six, seven years down a path that we never thought we'd get on. So in this psalm, Psalm 103, David, I want you to understand, David, this is a psalm of David, and he's not writing as a scholar who's read about this, he is writing as a man who has experienced what he's writing about. And there's a difference. If you've ever played and been coached by someone who read a book about that sport, it's different from someone who's actually played that sport. David has lived this life. This is later in his life. And so just a quick biography of David. David is the youngest of many sons, but he's, he was forgotten by his father. God sent a prophet to come find the, the king, the next king of Israel. And he comes to a family and he tells the dad, hey, bring me your sons. And the dad brings all of the sons and lines them up. And the prophet goes through all of them. And he's like, this, God still hasn't affirmed any of these. Is there another one? And David's dad says, oh, yeah, there is, that's right, there is one more. I forgot about David. I don't know what kind of family you grew up in, uh, but if someone comes to find a king in your house, I want to be on the line somewhere. Like, I don't want to be forgotten about. And his dad says, and what we know about David is he's ruddy and he's small. And his dad says, that's not the guy you're looking for. So this is the beginning of David's, this is his trajectory, this is... What happened to him at home? And for many of us, what happens to us at home stays with us. And what we're learning is more negative things than positive things stay with us. But David starts out his life this way. But then he goes on and he conquers Goliath. And he cuts Goliath's head off. He becomes a hero. Then he is, in fact, next in line to the throne. But the guy who's the king, Saul, repeatedly, literally tries to kill David. It seems like every time David gets something going in his way, something comes in to to destroy it. Of all the things we know about David, one of the most victorious kings that's ever been on the face of the earth, one of the greatest generals that we have ever seen in history, is known more for his sin with Bathsheba than he is for his successes as a leader. Because we are prone to negativity. In Scripture, there are hundreds of pages about David's conquering power and his devotion to the Lord and his songs of worship. But when, for many of us, when we hear the name David, we don't think about that. We think about Bathsheba and Uriah. That's what we think about. And that's, that's okay because that's, we're prone to that. What you also need to know about David is that while David is a great warrior king, he's also an emotional poet who hides himself in a dark room and just writes in his journal sometimes. This is who he is. Like, he is deeply emotional. He is a powerful king, and yet he has this part of him where he's so introspective that it's, he can't sometimes get out of it. And so he writes psalms like, Why are you downcast I think my soul? And here in Psalm chapter 103, what I think we we need to learn here this morning is that at this moment, it's later in his life, most of his life is behind him, all the conquering victories and the sin of Bathsheba, the murder of Uriah, that's all on him. That's all resting. And I can relate to David because I think in these moments, he just can't get out of it. Like for you, if there's been... Sin in your life or past regrets or something someone's done to you, it feels like no matter how good things are, this thing lingers. And right now, culturally for many of us, no matter how good things get, we have plenty of people reminding us how bad things are. But as followers of Jesus, I want to proclaim to you this morning, God is better than that. And he's good. So David, I think, here is wrestling, and he has that feeling of, I know that God is good, but it's like, my soul won't catch up to my mind. Do you ever feel that way? Like, I know things are true, but it's like, I can't emotionally get there. And so David pens this powerful, powerful song in Psalm 103. Before we get into study of the word, let's, let's pray and ask the Lord to help us. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the gift it is to gather together and to worship through music. What a gift don't music is to us that stirs affections in our hearts in ways that other things just can't and don't. I thank you for lyrics that are true, that we can remember, and that press deep into us. God, I thank you for your word that is not pretty and polished, but it's dirty and gritty and grimy. I thank you for a man like David whose life is not pretty and polished, but it's gritty and grimy. And yet you call him a man after your own heart. And God, as we study your word this morning, I pray that we would find first find you in it. And that through seeing you, that we might see ourselves how we need to be seen. God, give me the words to speak your words. May your spirit speak through me. May these words of flesh um, come out and be interpreted by the great teacher of the spirit that it might rest deeply upon our souls this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 103 begins by telling us it's just a psalm of David. A lot of psalms will tell us when he wrote it, where he wrote it, how he wrote it. This one just says of David as if that's enough. And it is enough. Because now we know David and this this is enough. Knowing him, he writes this psalm. He starts out with, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Now, bless is a word that we don't use a lot, except for right now when everybody sneezes. And then we also stare at them and say, please leave. Uh, But but this word, bless, is one of the the Hebrew words for praise. I'm going to give us some Hebrew words. I don't like to do that a lot, but it's going to help us in understanding. So if you want to take notes, take them, but it's going to help us a lot of words get lost in translation when we translate them to English. Um, for example, the word love. There's so many different Greek and Hebrew words for love. But literally in the same sentence I can tell my wife that I love her and I love Mexican food. And I love them differently. I love one of them more intimately. So that it gets lost in translation. So I want to give us a few words. This word bless is the Hebrew word barak. And And this word means to praise or to adore or exalt, but it comes with a little bit different connotation. It means to kneel or to bow down, but it's to kneel and bow with your eyes fixed on the subject of your praise or adoration. So for me, when I think of bowing, I think of humility more like humiliation. And so this is, we'll learn more about me. This is how I'm wired is uh, more like David that I look deeply into my own heart and soul. And so when I think of blessing and bowing before the Lord I often put my head down and I just kind of bury my face. anybody? Else? When you think of, of bowing before the Lord is that what you do? So this word means though that it's bowing in a way that you would keep your eyes fixed on the subject of your praise. It's going to be important. So David says bless the Lord. Fix your eyes on the Lord as you worship. Bless the Lord. And this word for Lord is Hebrew Jehovah. Yehovah. It's his personal name. It goes... Lots of transliteration, but essentially for us this morning, it means that God is who He is and who He will be. He is never changing. No matter who we are and who we become as we constantly change, God never changes. He is faithful through the ages. We sang about it this morning. What's interesting is that this psalm is not written to you and to me, it's not written for us to be informed. David wrote this psalm to himself. It's that place of he can't quite conjure up the emotion. He can't get himself where he needs to be. And so he says, bless the Lord, O my soul. And this Hebrew word for soul is the word nephesh. Now for us, when we hear soul, we think about some um, like magic ghost inside of us just moving the puppet strings of our hands and arms like, For a Hebrew and biblically, the soul, this nefesh, is the idea of your whole being. Everything about you. All of your living and breathing. And so here's what David is saying. Here's the first line of the song. Look at Jesus, soul. Follow me. Get get together, soul. And David is pleading with himself. He's not downcast. This isn't a call for humiliation or shame. That's not what this is. This is a cry to fix his eyes upon the Lord. And I think for many of us, because we're good Southern Christians, we know that we should kneel before the Lord and worship him, but I don't know for sure that we actually look at him while we're worshiping. I think we come to church when the doors are open and We get a devotional and we read it. But I'm just not convinced that I know that I fix my eyes on Jesus while I'm kneeling. You know where I fix my eyes is myself when I kneel. My own junk, my own sin, my own pride, my own skills, my own arrogance. That's where I fix my eyes. And right now, I don't know that many of us, it takes a lot for us to not fix our eyes on pandemics and riots and racism but this plea in psalm 103 what david is pleading to himself is ripped out of his guts of fix your eyes on jesus and so he screams to himself we have to fix our eyes on the lord and i don't think that we wrestle with our souls enough because i think we are prone to believe the lie that we are inherently good so why fight against it No, man, we are prone to wander. When you wake up tomorrow morning, get up and write down the first thing you think about. It's probably not the Lord. Like, it's that easy to wander. So then we realize that we're not doing well, and so then we resort to self-help. And so we look in the mirror and we talk to ourselves like Stuart Smalley from Saturday Night Live, and we say, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and God, doggone it, people like me. Or we, uh, we become the nanny from the help, and we say, you is smart, you is kind, you is important. And those are fine things, but in the dark season of your soul, affirmations, splashing water on your face, slapping your cheeks and telling yourself to go get after it, and saying, girl, wash your face isn't going to help you. This is not a plea to become a better version of yourself. This is a plea that we fix our eyes on Jesus. Nothing else will satisfy. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. And then he says, bless his holy name. Verse 2, he continues and says it again. And if you don't like songs that are repetitive, don't read the Psalms. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Bow before the Lord, O my soul. And then he says, forget not his benefits. Now I grew up in church and I grew up in a godly family and what was often taught to me was and I think it's true scripturally that you should um, love the giver more than you love the gift right you should love God more than what he has for you God's not a vending machine and all those things are true but in my warp twisted mind then that turns into I can't celebrate the things God has done for me because then that betrays me celebrating him and that's a lie. David says, don't forget his benefits. Don't forget the things he has done. I wander off the path of faithfulness when I forget to recount how good God has been to me. Bless the Lord, O my soul. And then he says, and forget not his benefits. So this morning, if you're having a hard time getting your heart to catch up to your mind, then I would say let's start here. And David's going to give us a list of the benefits of the Lord, the things that he has done. He's just going to lay it out there for himself. He has to remind himself the Lord has been good to you. Verse 3, who forgives all your iniquity. Like He doesn't start with he gave you flowers and air to breathe. David gets after it too. He forgives your iniquity. And if you want a place to start, if you don't know where to start worshiping the Lord and fixing your eyes on Jesus, I would highly suggest let's start here. He forgives all, not some, not half of, not the stuff you're sorry for. He forgives all your iniquity. Now, in in, in the Bible, there's different words for sin. You've got sin, trespass, iniquity. So I want to define this one. This Hebrew word for iniquity is the Hebrew, Hebrew word avon not Avon calling, but Avon. And it comes from the Hebrew word of Avah, which is something that's broken or crooked. So if a road were to take a hard right turn, you would say, hey, the road Avah is 100 feet ahead. Okay, so Avon is a crookedness. This iniquity is a crookedness. A crooked or broken thinking or behavior is what this is. We're going to get to other words, but this is kind of as the funnel begins. This is iniquity. This is crookedness, crooked behavior, we know crooked people, we've seen movies about crooked people, but this is us. We're crooked, we're broken, we're busted in our thinking and behavior. But then it just gets better. And this is the part for me that I'm still still, like, it, it overwhelms me sometimes. It is crookedness, crooked or broken thinking or behavior, and it is the crooked and broken consequence of that behavior. Okay, so in Hebrew terms, when somebody would be crooked towards you, there would be consequences that follow, right? And there are. When we walk in iniquity, when we walk in brokenness, there are consequences that follow. And that's that's how God has set the world up. There are consequences to our behavior. And this word is not not just your act of sin, but the consequences of our sin, And so, uh, biblically, when God would punish iniquity, you would hear things like, bear your iniquity. Carry your brokenness. Because how God punishes iniquity is that he allows us or forces us to sit in the consequences of our behavior. And any good parents know how to do this. Sometimes you have to allow your kids to suffer, to sit under the weight of their behavior, under their consequences. But goodness, look at what David says in verse 2. The Lord forgives your crookedness and the consequences that come because of it. He doesn't remove consequences, but he does, in fact, remove the guilt that you bear along with those consequences. You are no longer guilty for the consequences of your sin if you confess them to the Lord. He removes that. The burden, like to bear your iniquity, the Lord would actually say, and we'll study this later, that he has come to bear our iniquity, to carry it, to carry the sin and the consequences of it. And if anyone knows consequences of sin, it's David who lost a child because of his sin. And David starts with, soul, catch up to my mind. Catch up. Don't forget his benefits. Don't forget that he forgives your iniquity, soul. Don't forget. And then that he heals all your diseases. Now, this could be physical illness or like this disease of sin, I'm just gonna say yes and amen to both of those. He does both. Verse four who redeems your life from the pit or from destruction, that he would buy back your life. David's telling himself, You've been in destruction, you've been in the pit, the Lord has bought you back. But then this verse, this phrase, who crowned you with steadfast love and mercy. Now, the idea of crowning is that it would surround or anoint or identify. It's why crowns are round, also so they fit on your head. But the idea of a crown is not for decoration, but now it identifies you as something other than what you were. When a prince or a princess would be crowned, as a king or a queen, they would remove one crown and then put the next one on top of them because they are no longer a prince. Now they are a king. Crowning somebody, blessing them, and as we bow before the Lord, as we bow before him uh, to bless him, our eyes fixed on him, he graciously moves towards us and places a crown on our head. But what is this crown? In Psalm chapter 103, this psalm, this crown, he crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Now, we don't say steadfast love. Some of your translations say loving kindness or just says love. This word, though, is, man, it's, it's heavy and it's packed full of meaning. Steadfast love is the Hebrew word hesed, or chesed, and it's the idea of a faithful, persistent love, even to the point of shame. I don't know that we know how to love like because we love and we'll love if it costs us something but if it costs us our reputation to love someone we're very quickly apt to jump ship but the lord loves us with a love that costs him his reputation and he gladly bore that for us he crowns us with loving kindness so when you are prone, and David, when we are prone to focus on our own self, our own junk, our navel gaze, and we're prone to focus on our sin and the things that make us gross and disgusting, and the Lord says, come here, and he says, no, 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 love and kindness. I don't care. Steadfast love. I am not ashamed of you. I don't care what you've done. I am not ashamed of you. And I will walk beside you and before you and behind you. Those promises aren't true because you're holy. They're true because I'm holy. And David has to remind his soul that God loves him. steadfastly, even to the point of shame. This is marital language. This is how a husband ought to love his wife and a wife ought to love her husband. To stand by them bearing the shame of their spouse knowing that they have such steadfast persistent faithful love for them side note culturally we're so quick to jump ship when things get tough and I don't know what that teaches the world about the gospel of Jesus that he leaves when things get hard that he leaves when when we disappoint him that he leaves when we betray him no his love is steadfast. He crowns us. He identifies us by that love. Then verse 5, this God who satisfies you with good. Notice it doesn't say he satisfies you with trinkets. He satisfies you with mediocre. He satisfies you with flowers every, once every three years. No, he satisfies you with good, with sustenance, things that are, with things that matter. It's Philippians 4 that we would fix our minds on things that are right and true and beautiful and praiseworthy. You will never be satisfied by a mediocre imitation of the goodness of God. Only by the pure goodness of God. And David's reminding himself, I've tried other things, but I know the only thing that satisfies me is the good things of the Lord. And he does so so that your youth is renewed like the eagle's. So that we can spring back, that we can bounce back from what was once holding us down. And you know that shame and guilt and and anger and fear, they age us, don't they? I mean, when you're in seasons of guilt and shame, don't you just feel older? David's saying, hey, this, this is renewing kind of goodness. This is renewing kind of steadfastness. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. Now he shifts it a bit and he says, hey, he's so good to me that he's also good to those in the world. And here's what the Lord does. He works righteousness and justice for the oppressed. But notice, David doesn't do it. The Lord does it. He calls upon the Lord's goodness to not only him but to other people. And sometimes that's a good way to get our eyes off of our own Sin is to lift, oh, he does this for everyone. He does, this is what he does. He made known, and then he known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. God gave the commandments to Moses, and then he walked with the people of Israel. He doesn't just speak things, he walks with us. Then verse eight, the Lord is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. These two words, merciful and gracious, I think sometimes we, Kind of pick and choose what we want, want to use. So merciful mercy is the idea that you don't get what you do deserve. And a lot of times that's how we picture the Lord. Well, he withheld judgment from, from me, so I should worship him. Yeah, probably. I mean, that, that's, that's enough. But God's like a late night infomercial and just wait, there's more. And he continues like this. He's merciful, but he's gracious. And grace is that he gives you what you don't deserve. He withholds his wrath and instead gives you goodness? Like, that's how good God is. Not because you deserve it. The wages of sin is death. But he withholds wrath and then gives you goodness. We are like spoiled children to the Lord. We don't deserve the things he's given us. And David has to remind himself of it. He's slow to anger, abounding in set fast love. He abounds in this just said, like it's overflowing from him. He doesn't have to conjure it up Say, oh, I guess here we go again. No, he abounds in it. He will not always chide or wrestle with this. He will not keep his anger forever. Maybe this morning you just need to hear that and underline it and you can leave with that one line. He will not keep his anger forever. He will not keep his anger forever. Verse 10, what a beautiful statement. He does not deal with us according to our sins when he has every right to. Because he is holy and perfect and he has every right to demand that from us. And from the moment we breathe our first breath, we do not have it within us to give him what he needs. He does not deal with us according to our sins. He does not give us what our sins deserve. He does not repay us according to our iniquities. Then the next verse. Verse 11. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his chesed, his steadfast love... Towards those who fear him As far as the east is from the West, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And I love that he talks north, south and then east-west. You know, if you keep want to go going north on our planet, at some point you will stop going north and you will start going south. If you want to go south, at some point, you'll stop going south at the South Pole, and you'll come back and you'll be going north. But did you know, if you go out of here and you start heading east, you will never stop heading east until you turn around. You could go east all the way around the world and come back to where you started and still never once head west. How beautiful is that illustration for how far your sins are away from you. That the punishment of your sin will never see your face. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, Transgression is another word for sin in the Hebrew Old Testament. And the the word is pesha. And this idea is a betrayal of a relationship. It's broken trust. So now, it's not just that you have crooked behavior and crooked crooked actions. Now it's that you've betrayed the creator of the universe. A God who is jealous. So now it's personal. But he removes that rebellious guilt away from us. Again, if you can't quite get your soul to where you know you need to be, read this. 13. As a father shows compassion to his children, this idea of compassion is a deep, tender affection. As a father shows deep, tender affection to his children, so the Lord shows this compassion to those who fear him. It's the second time he said fear, so I need to talk about it. It is the idea of being afraid. But it. it, it being afraid in a way that leads us to a reverence of him. But here's the problem for us. We want to jump to compassion and grace, but never once touch on this side of him. You will never know the grace and compassion of the Lord until you know what he is capable of and rightly able to do. Do you want to know why grace matters? Because God could destroy us if he wanted to and never once feel guilty about it. We deserve punishment. We deserve death. And once we start there, then to understand, oh, my goodness, that compassion. If I were to go outside in our driveway at our basketball hoop and I wanted to play horse with my four-year-old daughter named Landry. I said, Landry, let's play horse. And if she decided by the sheer grace and compassion in her heart that she would let me win, that's not compassion. Compassion. Because there is no way in the world she would beat me at a horse. And I'm not good at basketball. But I I can get the ball up to the hoop and she cannot. However, if I were to lower the hoop and hold her up to put the ball in the hoop and be like, oh, baby, you won. That is compassion. Because I have the power to win, but I allow her to, that is compassion. Do you understand what I'm saying? We have to understand the power of God to understand his compassion towards us. The Lord shows compassion on those who fear him. When we rightly understand who he is, then we understand compassion. And here's why he shows us compassion. And this verse for me has broken me. He shows compassion because he knows our frame. And he remembers that we are dust. I I am wired in a way that I want to be successful and I want to be good at things and I don't like when I'm not good at things. Meredith and I went snow skiing a number of years ago and I grew up in Florida. So I don't snow ski. I don't snow walk. (laughs) And I was like, I mean, but I've water skied before. I've surfed. Sure, it's probably the same. Snow is made of water. Uh, It's not the same. And I hated it. Like I, I am awful at it. And she's good at it. It makes it even worse. And so she'd want to keep going. And I'm like, I, no, I do not. I will sit here. I No. So it's like, well, do you want to go and, you know, just go to some classes and be taught? Like, With five-year-olds? No, I don't want to do that. that. That's my nature. Like, that's what I'm prone to is I just, I want to be good at everything. I don't like when I'm not good at something. And so if I'm not good at it, I will pretend that I am. You ever been in the conversations where somebody says something super smart and that you're supposed to, act like you're supposed to know what they're talking about, but you have no idea what they're talking about. And so you're like, oh, mm, I read about that. <laughs> oh, you didn't. Like, that's, that's me. I just, I feel responsible for my own development. I feel like I should reach some level. And when it comes to the Lord, I've just always felt like I just need to keep working harder. Like one day I'll make him proud. One day he'll be happy with me. One day I'll reach a point where I don't sin anymore. At some point I'll be so good at being a Christian that he'll love me. It says he has compassion because he knows how he made us. He knows what we're made of and we're made of dirt. This where dust takes us back to Genesis 2-7 where he formed man out of the dust of the ground. This is He knows. He was there. He did it. I feel like for me, though, I place these expectations that God hasn't placed on me to become something and be something and make people like me and respect me. And, and all the while, I know I'm not, so I've got to cover it up. You know what? Does anybody feel me here? You're not what you think you want to be, so then you've got to pretend to be what you think other people want you to be. And then at some point, you don't even know who you are. And this verse, that the Lord knows me, blows my mind that he was there when I was created and he knows me. I don't like that. I don't like that I'm just dust to the Lord. I don't want to be that. I thought I was the apple of his eye and the crown jewel of creation. I thought that's what I was. I don't want this. I don't want to be like everyone else. So we have three kids, I've got an 11-year-old, a 7-year-old, and a 4-year-old Landry, and Kacen is 7, and it'd be like if I told Kaysen, hey, buddy, um, this weekend, he's 7 and scrawny and um, just likes to be inside. And so if I said, hey, buddy, I'm going to come, this weekend, let's go outside and we're going to play some football. He likes to play football or soccer. Let's go outside and we'll play or we'll ride bikes. You can ride your scooter. And I said, but to do that, you're going to have to mow the grass first. I told my seven-year-old, hey, the grass has to be mowed before we can do this. Like, we have to get that done first. And so my expectation then was that Kason, my seven-year-old, red-headed, translucent-skinned boy, would go outside and he would go out and then mow our, our grass that had gotten way too high because we'd been on vacation. And by doing that, then he would allow then the place for he and I to have a relationship, right? That's, that's what I'm saying. And what kind of father would I be if I came home Friday afternoon and said, what have you been doing? Go start the mower. Go put gas in and go mow the grass. Like, we can't have this relationship until you fix this problem. No, I know Cason's frame. I know what he is capable of. I still want to play with him, but I know he's not going to be able to clear the ground. So, as a father, what do I do? I mow the grass. I don't expect him, I know him. Now, my 11 year old, maybe, but I know Kason can't. And this is how the Lord is for us He knows what you're capable of, He knows you can't be perfect, He knows you can't be righteous. And you know what he did is he made a way for relationship by sending Jesus for us. And all we have to do is come outside. It's all we have to do. But I have lived my life trying to mow the grass for the Lord. And God's like, stop mowing the grass. Come play football with me. I've already mowed it. You're scalping it. Stop. I'm trying to get a golf course in my front yard. But I hope this... He knows you. He knows. He's not surprised. He knows you're just dust. That's why he has compassion upon us. He knows. Verse 15, he goes on. As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field, but then the wind passes over and it's gone. And His place knows it no more. What he's saying is you can produce beautiful things, but all it takes is one gust of wind and it's gone. It's temporal. It's not going to do what I need it to do. Then verse 17, anytime the word but is in Scripture, it's going to be powerful. And he says, but... Verse 17, the steadfast love, the chesed, the loving kindness, the persistent, faithful to the point of shame kind of love from the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Do you see the difference? Our works are fading. What he crowns us with will never fade. And I am done finding my identity as a flower, and I'm going to find my identity as crowned in steadfast love. And I invite you there. It's from everlasting, meaning it has no beginning and it has no end. You want to know why God can't stop loving you? Because he actually never started to begin with. He always has. If there's no ending, there can't be an end. From everlasting to everlasting, we're now identified and it's a crown that will not fade. The steadfast love of the Lord. And he keeps his promise. He gives his righteousness to his children's, to children's children. verse 18 to those who keep his covenant and remember to do his commandments it does not say to those who do his commandments so that you can keep a covenant to those who keep or guard or protect whose covenant is it what does it say whose covenant you can say it out loud his is it your covenant did you promise God anything no a covenant is a one sided contract he didn't ask anything of you He did it. And our job is to remember that he did it. To remember those who remember his covenant, who keep his covenant, who guard his covenants, and then keep, remember to do his commandments. Because a covenant remembrance leads to obedience. Verse 19: The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. This is where it gets good. This is where David is like, Oh, snap, I remember. He's like, yes, this, I'm there, like my soul is there. And he gets here and he says, okay, the Lord has established his throne in the heavens. This is the reminder. He's fixed his eyes on Jesus, soul, catch up, catch up. Here are all the things the Lord has done. He's been gracious and merciful, abounding in steadfast love. He has borne your iniquity. And he looks up and he says, you are in the heavens. You're on the throne." Not a politician, not my dad, not my mom, not a spouse, not my kids, not me, you. And this is the moment when it all clicks and he says, oh, you are in the heavens and your kingdom rules over all. And then the drums come back in, right? And then everything swells and you feel it coming. This, he just gets louder. And here's how you know it gets louder because there's exclamation points. I don't know if you're like me, but I text with way too many exclamation points. I don't mean to be yelling or super excited. I just want you to know I'm not mad. So I put an exclamation point in. But this is important. Verse 20. Now he's, now he's so excited he's telling the angels what to do. David, who was once kind of burrowed in his own sin and shame, has risen to the point that he's telling angels what to do. Have you ever told an angel what to do? Like this is the power of Worship. Spurgeon says he's gotten to where his works of praise have made its way into his hands. Like it just starts coming up out of you. And he says, bless the Lord, you his angels. You mighty ones who all his word, obeying the voice of his word. Then verse 21, bless the Lord, all his hosts, all of you. The ministers who do his will, things are clicking now. He's starting to understand it's building and it's driving and he can't wait. And then one last time, verse 22, bless the Lord, all his works in all places of dominion. Now it's not just me, it's everywhere. And then he says at the end of 22, what does he say? Bless the Lord, oh my soul, I'm there, I got there. Fixed my eyes, I bowed, I forgot not his benefits, and as I recounted his goodness to me, it starts to build. I don't know where you are this morning, but I think we can get there too. To a place where you just can't help it. And when the band plays and the songs come on or you open your word, you're just like, yes, this, this is what I need, this is what I want. So quickly with application, three things. First, you've got to fight the natural bent of your soul. You've got to first admit your soul is prone to wander. It does not want to worship the Lord. It does not want to believe that he has finished the work for you. Your soul does not want that. The natural man is prone to wander. We've got to fight. Secondly, we need to fix our eyes on the Lord's eyes. I know when I'm mired in guilt and shame, I don't look people in the eye because I don't like what they're seeing when they look back at me, and I project that on the Lord. And I felt like, Lord, if I look in your eyes right now, I don't want to see the fire. I don't want to see it. But the Lord has compassion with tender mercy. He looks at you. Look at his eyes. Look at his eyes. Like the father in Luke 15 of the prodigal, he runs to you and he throws a rope around, come home. Finally, forget not his benefits. Don't forget. Don't think you've done anything. Don't think you can't celebrate the things he's done. Proclaim them. You know what he's done for you? Maybe he's given you a spouse. Maybe he's given you you kids. Maybe he hasn't. Maybe he's given you a job. Maybe this morning he's just given you a place to go worship. I don't know at the end of the day, if you want to start with who forgives all my iniquity, I think that's fine. In Isaiah chapter 53, Prophet Isaiah is proclaiming about this suffering servant who would be coming that we would know as Jesus. I'm just going to wrap up with this. I'm going to give an invitation. But here's, here's the deal. Here's, here's what Isaiah 53 verse 5 says. It says that he, the suffering servant Jesus, who David is talking about, was wounded for our tra- transgressions. My translation says that he was pierced for our transgression. Now, transgression, remember, is a betrayal of, of trust or friendship. It is backstabbing. It is arrows in the back. And what Isaiah is saying is this servant, this Jesus, will gladly take your betrayal. He will gladly take you stabbing him in the back. He will take all of it. He was pierced for our transgressions. What should have been them coming back at us, he then absorbed. And then he says he was crushed for our iniquities. The iniquity is that you would bear your iniquity. You would sit under the weight of your sin. But Isaiah, the prophet, says, no, 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 he took that. He is bearing our iniquity. He said, I will carry your iniquity, so much so that he is crushed under the weight of my iniquity and your iniquity and your iniquity and millions of people's iniquity, and he's crushed underneath it. Under, uh, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. The punishment that we deserve was given to him that we might have peace. With his stripes we are healed. And then verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray, all of us. Prone to wander, everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So, if you don't know Jesus this morning and there is a weight that is crushing you, here is the good news of a good God who actually does love you no matter what you've heard. He does love you. And how do I know? He sent his son to bear what you're bearing right now so that you don't bear it anymore. And you, through through confession and repentance, can say, I can't handle it. And the Lord, according to Hebrews, who says, if we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, that he, he gladly bears our shame. For the joy set before him endured the cross. In joy, he's not making you feel ashamed that he has to do it. In gladness, he will take it from you. I don't know what is burdening you this morning, but if it's that, that you can't get out the weight of your own sin and you just need someone to release it and relieve you from it, then you can. And it's just saying, God, I can't, but you can. I believe that Jesus is who he says he is and I believe, I believe that if I confess my sin to him, he will remove it from me as far as the east is from the west and I want to walk in freedom. I want to stand up straight and walk again. For those of us this morning who maybe we just, we can't quite get there. The band's going to come back up. We're going to sing one more song. And it's the song 10,000 Reasons, which just says, bless the Lord, O my soul. Here's my plea to you this morning. First of all, kneel before the Lord, but keep your eyes on him. Don't you dare lift, keep your eyes from Jesus. Don't you dare look at yourself and your own shame and your own guilt and your own uh, sin that you're living in. Don't do that. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Don't look at the world. Don't look at everything circling around us. It's not going to help you. It will not satisfy you. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And as you do that, as you recount those things about him and who he is to you, you will find the strength within you to tell angels what to do. Bless the Lord, O my soul.